I grew up in the Bronx in a big Italian Catholic family. Very loving, very warm. To this day, everyone's still very close. Between the Italian and the Catholic, there was a lot of guilt. He was a God to be feared. It was like, oh, I'm so sorry, you're gonna be mad. And I don't really think that my parents meant that message, but that's the message that we got. I always felt that I wasn't quite good enough. I would always disappoint God. Rusty and I met in Dallas in 1991. We were both working for Frito-Lay at the time and we transferred there and uh, really the rest is history. We got married 17 years ago and uh, started our life in Dallas. We found out pretty early in our marriage that we weren't able to have children. On the outside, you know, I appeared, well, it's okay, it won't, it, it's okay, everything will be fine, I'm busy, I'm working, I'm, everything's fine. Um, I was devastated inside. And I always had a feeling that I wasn't good enough, and now I had this feeling that here it is again, I can't even have a child. And it had tore me up um, because we had an amazing love between the two of us. And we had all the financial resources in the world, and we could give a child anything, and I just couldn't understand it. It was a very, very deep hurt that I buried by doing so many things. We moved to San Francisco in 1999 and decided we should get serious about looking for a church. As we were getting involved in making our way through our connection classes at Cornerstone, I became friendly with the director of the children's ministry. She had constantly been asking me to help, and I was always too busy. Oh, I'm joining another board. I'm joining this board. I'm chairing a gala. I'm just way, way too busy. And she walked me to my car, and she started jumping up and down in front of me. Hello, we're right here. Can't you see that there's a need right here where you live, in San Francisco, right in your church? Everything just hit me. I cried all the way home. God had lined up every single step, and now it was up to me. I did my last big international meeting in September of 2003, told them I was not gonna renew any more contracts. And in November of that same year, I started working in the children's ministry. Growing up in the 60s as a Catholic, you didn't read the Bible. I knew Moses, Noah, Adam and Eve, and maybe they threw Jonah in there once in a while, but I mean, Nebuchadnezzar could have been a city, as far as I was concerned, because I absolutely had no clue. And so, through my studying of my lessons each week, I would have to open the Bible and read to prepare in order to give the lessons to the children. And so, I actually learned with them. Everything that I was telling these children was applying to my life. If I was able to tell them that Jesus loved them, then put the love of God in their hearts, well, then he was certainly in mine too. To just see how pure and, and real their love is, it's enabled me to realize that yes, I am good enough, because all I need is his love, and I've learned that by teaching that to somebody else. Last Valentine's Day, there was a little note on my desk for Teacher Patty, and I opened it up fully expecting it to be a Valentine's card for, for me. And inside were two little pieces of paper, and one of them said, 
I love. And the second one said, church. It was the most beautiful reward I could have ever received. It's not because it's me. It's because they're going home and still talking about church and still talking about the love of God. Serving in the children's ministry has filled a real void in my heart um, from someone who couldn't have children to having so many each week. If I'm going to be honest, maybe never reconcile that fact. I know now why I was called to serve in the children's ministry. It's because instead of putting the love of God in the one child that I would have had, I'm able to put the love of God in 30 children every single Sunday. One of my favorite pieces of scripture is Matthew 18, where he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I became a child, and I learned with them, and the children have really led me to him. He has become, instead of a God that I feared, a God that I could love. And that was a huge step and it was the children that led me there. That's the way that God has worked in my life. My name is Patty Roof, and this is how I'm building my life. series and how to build a life and how to move forward with God and one of the things we were wanting to do and we, we've been doing this now uh, this is the second piece and we're gonna have some more uh, stories really uh, about what's happening all around us in our own church because a lot of times you know we, we've got the different services and our our community you know comes together at different times and we forget I think some of the amazing things that God's doing right in the midst of it in the midst of this place and sometimes in the people right next to us and so it was every now and then it's good for us to think about that. I mean, part of what was highlighted here had to do with the, the blessing of serving, and how serving becomes something that not only is there a blessing in terms of what we're giving away to someone else, in, in this case, something was being given to the children and the shaping of their heart so that there would be a sense of always having a knowledge of God's love for them. And um, that's, that's an outcome of service. But one of the things I think also that showed up in this was that you know, when we serve, we get blessed. And when we give something, we, we, we share in, in something that happens inside of us that wouldn't have happened in any other way. And oftentimes the biggest miracle is not just what, what happens as a result of the good thing we're doing, but what happens inside of us as we do it. Now, part of the reason I think many of you are aware that we have been talking more and more about serving and stepping in and taking advantage of the opportunity to serve is because um, we have this, you know, as, as some of you are aware, this, this quest, this open door that is now already in process. 
um, the second campus that we're starting on the west side of the city, the Isaiah 542 project. And the whole you know, dream and vision that we've had to want to increase our ability to, to see more people you know, touch with the good news of Jesus and uh, to be part of that, part of that in this city that the Lord loves. And, and uh, we're really excited about that. But I think a lot of you know, and every now and then we just need to be saying this as we ramp up towards the new year when we launch in January, is that there are tremendous uh, opportunities and needs that are beginning to be, you know, just become available both in terms of the Merced campus, which is by Lake Merced in San Francisco State on Brotherhood Way, that campus is which we, we're needing people to commit to being volunteers to help plant that and being part of an entrepreneurial you know, process. At the same time, there's a tremendous amount of openings that are gonna be happening here on the Mission Campus. And, and you probably have already seen the cards and they're in the, in the back of the seats. You can go online and fill them out. I know some of you have already said, you know, we're gonna be doing it, just gonna be waiting a little bit. But we really, it does help us tremendously to know uh, if, if there is a willingness to commit to a point of service. Some of us, um, you can see there are different categories there that you can commit to, and then there are subcategories even within that. But you know, maybe in the past there might have been a legitimate rationale that, well, you know, there's plenty of people to serve. But now that we're really stepping out in faith and really trying to create a, a whole new expression, a, an entire different site, two sites, one church, this whole idea um, is that we are going to need people who feel called of God to step forward and to be a part of giving some things away in the name of Jesus and the sharing and the joy of serving together. Please be aware of that. I think it coincides perfectly with what we've been talking about in terms of this study on Nehemiah. And we're going to jump into that in a moment, but let me go ahead and pray and just ask God to bless the remaining time that we have together. And Lord, you know, uh, again, we're just continually amazed by the way in which you can touch people's lives and the way in which you grow people and the way in which you are working inside of us, Lord. Uh, oftentimes, um, your, your ways uh, are ways that we didn't anticipate, and they surprise us. They become expressions of your grace. Uh, and they, they become marking points in our lives that remind us that you are aware of the things that oftentimes we're having to work through, and you also have a plan for us, a path for us to walk in. And I pray that as we examine this account, you know, written hundreds of years ago about a man who lived a long time ago, who had a heart to do something for you, that our hearts would be challenged to be responsive as well. And so it's into this time that we commit our hearts as openly as we can give them to you, and we ask for you to speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God. Now, you'll note that the, uh, the theme, again, is Nehemiah. Nehemiah, we've been talking a lot about him. It's not only a book in the Old Testament, but Nehemiah is a, a, an amazing man. Uh, the whole account of Nehemiah takes place, I would say, about 2,500 years um, before this time right now. So it's a long time ago, for about 450 years before, before Christ's coming. Um, you know, this account transpires and happens, and it's a, quite a story. We're going to look at Nehemiah's story, but we're also going to be focusing, if we can put it this way, that's the larger theme, how to build through looking at it through the lens of Nehemiah. But the particular thrust this morning is connected to the idea of breakthrough and how to face challenging situations in our lives that inevitably we will have to face. There are principles, there is wisdom, tremendous wisdom to be gleaned that we can appropriate in our own lives at critical times that will be of tremendous benefit for us. 
And so the Bible is valuable not only as a historical document that teaches us something about what happened in the life of a man a long time ago who was open to God touching and using his life, but it has tremendous application to the present. And what we want to do is we want to take this and we want to learn from it and apply it to our lives because inevitably we either are in the process of walking through things that are challenging us right now. Some of those things may be external. Some of them may be inside of our own heart. And then we're going to have then the opportunity to really learn how to, how to negotiate those sometimes challenging pathways that we're facing in, in this culture that we're living in. So just with that in mind, I want us to move through the passage. fairly. Now, I put, there are a lot of verses inside this handout. And uh, I gave them, they said, are you sure you want that many? I said, yeah, I just put them all in there. and We'll, we'll read through it together. So I'm going to move rapidly through this, but, but hopefully not too fast. So it says this, early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king as wine. Now remember, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king of Persia. That means he's the one responsible for testing the king's drink, making sure it's not poisoned. He says, you know, and I had never before appeared sad in his presence. It was something that he had been intentional about, and he understood that it was not considered appropriate decorum for someone who served the king to show anything but a positive attitude. You certainly didn't want to look sad and depressed in his presence, lest you incurred the king's wrath. And so the king asked me, he says, why are you so sad? What's wrong with you? I mean, basically is this, I don't think Nehemiah chose to be sad as a way of creating an incident. His body language gave him away. That's what we would say. His demeanor, his just his appearance. The king could tell he wasn't sick physically, but something he could tell was bothering him. King um, evidences a degree of perception. And he says that, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be troubled. You must be deeply troubled. Something's really bothering you, isn't it, Nehemiah? You need to tell me what it is. And Nehemiah says, then I was terrified. I was afraid. I got really afraid. I was afraid that he was going to do something. He was going to react, that he had noticed, and now I was in trouble. He says, but I replied, which is, <laughs> we love his response, long live the king, right? Which is a great response when you're in trouble, potentially. And he says, so blessings to you, O king, but if you want, I'm going to be honest about it. Yes, there is something that's deeply troubling me. It's really hard for me right now because something's been happening, and it's, it's touched me in a way that has made it hard for me to just ignore it. He says, how can I not be sad because the city where my ancestors are buried, he's talking about Jerusalem. He's in Persia. He's talking about Jerusalem. He says, that city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. About 140 years prior um, to Nehemiah, the first exiles had been allowed to return from Babylon to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. 20 years after that first band had, had arrived, um, they had built a temple to honor the Lord. But their attempts to really continue the building process had, had been, been something they were unable to sustain. And so as a result, their, the city itself had never been completely rebuilt. The walls were in sort of a place of rubble. Uh, the critical gates, again, I know we live in a modern context. It's hard for us to appreciate the significance of city walls and what gates meant. I mean, if you had walls around your city, you were essentially safe. You had a degree of confidence that you could, you could build assets and not have them plundered by marauders or raiding parties. A city without walls lived in perpetual, how would we say, vulnerability. 
and there was an ongoing low-grade kind of paranoia that would have set in, knowing that at any moment, all that you've been working for could be taken from you. A city without walls lived with that sense of insecurity. And also the gates, of course, which were the ability, which gave the city the ability to have access in and out, right, and, and egress. That, that that was the place where the roads led into the city walls and into the, into the, into the city itself. And so these, these idea of entry points, just the whole city was absolutely still a disaster. There had been some modest efforts made to rebuild, but they had never been sustainable. As a result, Nehemiah is coming into a situation, again, 100, almost 140 years where there's been nothing rebuilt since the first, um, first people arrived back in Jerusalem. Keeping that in mind, we move forward here. The king asks this. He says, well, you know, after Nehemiah tells him why he's, why he's feeling what he's feeling, what does the king say to him? He says, well, well how, how can I help you? You know, is there something that I can do to help you? Now, that, it, first off, that was an amazing statement to make. It wasn't what Nehemiah was expecting. And then remember how we talked about this last week? He says, and then with a prayer to the God of heaven. We love that. We, remember we talked about the power and the value of small prayers in critical moments, uh, my uh, daughter, my oldest daughter, was taking her finals, and uh, I had texted her about something, and she says, "Dad, I'm I'm getting ready to take a final. Just pray to small, uh, a Nehemiah prayer, right?" And uh, I knew what she meant. I go, "Oh, that's good. That's good. I'll pr- I'll pray one with you, right?" The idea was she she was at, you know the idea of a small prayer in a, in a little window, and how sometimes it can be a big deal. You know, we just say, "God, just I just pray right now. You just help me." Or, Lord, as I'm moving in this conversation, I just welcome you, your presence in this conversation. We're getting ready to make a presentation. Lord, I just pray you give me courage. You know, we've got to make a decision. We step forward. Just a, sometimes a small prayer at the right time can have tremendous benefit and power. Nehemiah doesn't have time for anything else, but he does welcome God into his situation. He says, Lord, just come and help me right now because the door looks like it's swinging open and I need courage. Look what he does. He says, then I replied, if it pleases the king, and if you are pleased with me, and it seemed that the king was, he says, I do have something that I would like you to do for me. I need your permission. I need you to release me from my, my role as a, as a servant to you. Which, by the way, that was a critical role that Nehemiah filled. I need you to let me go back, um, send me, I'm your servant. I need you to send me to Judah. That's the place where Jerusalem was. And I need you to help the, to let me go back so I can rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. And the king, and then Nehemiah adds, and the queen who was sitting beside him asked this question, well, how long are you going to be gone? I mean, how long do you want to leave? Assuming we give you permission to go, do you have an idea of how long it would be and when you would be returning? And, And after I told him how long, I would be gone. Now, we know from the fifth chapter of Nehemiah that that Nehemiah was actually gone for 12 years. Now, I don't know if he said 12. He might have said it may be as much as a decade. It wasn't just the building project itself. It was going to be the other things that were going to be connected to it in terms of overseeing. Whatever the time frame was that he told the, told the king, the king agreed to let him go. Look what happens. And, I, and, I, and, then, and then look what he says. I also said to the king, after the king agreed to my request, we'll let you do it. He says, well, and so it's like the door swings open and Nehemiah just decides, I'm going to go for it. Watch this. If it pleases the king, then I'm going to need you to give me some additional things. Would you be willing to give me some letters that are addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah? Now, I'll just kind of put a, a quickly a map to give us some sense of context. And again, if you look closely here, 
you'll see where he is in Susa, that's in Persia. By the way, Persia today, modern day Iran. You see the Tigris and the Euphrates, key rivers in the ancient world. That's where Iraq is. Now you can see where Jerusalem is, the Mediterranean Sea. We get an idea of the geography. He's talking about an 800 mile journey. He's going to need permission as he's moving through the different provinces. They have governors, uh, that's what we would call them, essentially overseers of territory. Though there are certain requirements that they would have had. Nehemiah has thought this through. He says, you know what I'm going to need from you, King? Oh, King, I'm going to need uh, some papers with your name on it, if you don't mind. That gives me the ability to move through uh, the inevitable red tape that I'm going to have to be uh, confronting bureaucratically. I need to have clear access through the provinces. Would you be willing to sign some documents giving me full authority to do that? And then he says, oh, and, and one more thing. He says, if it, if it also, if you still feel favorable towards me and are supportive, uh, I also want to know if you'd consider one other thing. I need a letter. Look at that, verse 8. I need a letter that's addressed to Asaph. Now, Asaph is the manager of the, of the king's forest. And if you would, I need you to, to, to let him know that I have the ability to requisition uh, timber for the project, uh, and if you s would give, give me that permission, I would be deeply in gratitude to you because I'll need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortresses, the city walls, and for the house for myself that I'm going to have to live in during the time that this is taking place. And, and, and you, know, you know what he was asking? Do you understand? He, he, when the king says, yeah, you can go, and then, and then he says, well, you know, can you give me the papers I need to be able to get through, cut through quickly? Yeah, and then he says, oh, and one more thing. Would you be willing to give me um, the ability to acquire all the supplies needed? Essentially, I'm going to ask you, would you pay for the entire project? I need you to resource it. Would you consider donating to the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem? And the king says, yeah, I would. And then, so Nehemiah must be going, oh, and he does. In fact, he says, he says, and the king granted these requests. And look at the end of that that. Uh, that Eighth verse, he says, because the gracious hand of God was with me. He goes, I recognize that God's hand was with me in this moment. That God was in this. That he had softened the king's heart. And then the king adds one more thing that Nehemiah wasn't even asking for. And Nehemiah throws this in. He says, oh, and by the way, the king says, one more thing. Look what he, look what he writes, verse 9. He says that um, when I came to the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. Oh, and the king, I should add, Nehemiah writes, uh, he had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. So what the king says is, you know what? Not only am I going to give you permission to do all these things, to leave your job uh, for a long time, and not only am I going to give you permission to, get, to go where you're going, I'm not only going to give, pay for the entire project and give you all that you need, but I'm also going to make sure that you have protection as you make your way through so that I'm going to give you some, uh, a contingent of the army. I'm going to give you some officers to go with you. I'm going to make sure that you're safe, that you arrive securely, that you're not molested on, along the way or taken advantage of by anybody who would want to steal what we were giving you. I mean, this is like Nehemiah must be going, oh my, the Lord is with me in an amazing way. Then he goes on to say this, all right? But there was something else. Now we see a shift. And this shift in the story, in this account, is going to be a part of our discussion in the weeks ahead. There were two men in particular who when they heard about the fact that there was someone coming from Persia who was interested in helping the citizens of Jerusalem were bothered by that. Their names are listed here, Sanballat and Tobiah. These two men, one of which was, we believe, the governor of the region of Samaria, which was the area right on top of Judea where Jerusalem was, and then his assistant, Tobiah. 
that when they heard that there was someone who was coming here, it says, he writes, that when they heard of my arrival, that they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel, that they were extremely displeased that someone had come to contend for the well-being of the people of Israel. And, and we know that, that they were bothered. They were essentially local chieftains. Uh, they had, why were, why, they were very happy with the situation at, as status quo. In their mind, things were perfect. Um, they, they were essentially running things, almost like a, a, a tribal chieftain who had control over an entire region. And the citizens of Jerusalem were in many ways completely at his mercy. They had no ability to protect themselves. And so his armies, he could do whatever he wanted. There was a sense that they were oppressed as a people in this situation. No real freedom. They hear about Nehemiah's potential coming, and they're not sure, but they don't like it because it's a potential problem for them. That's going to show up. Look what happens. He goes, so I arrived, verse 11, I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out. So after I got to Jerusalem, I waited three days. After that, I made a decision. I slipped out during the night, and I took only a few others with me. I didn't tell anybody. I had told no one about the plans that God had put in my heart for Jerusalem, so nobody knows why I was here or why I had come. He says, we took no pack animals with us except the donkey that I was riding on. And then he says, after dark, under the cloak of darkness, essentially he went as stealthily as he could. I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well. Now, just putting up a little quick little idea of a map, just to give us a little sense of what he's saying here. I'll just kind of read through this, but you can kind of see the visual. He says, after dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over the dung gate to the inspect the broken walls and the burned gates. And then I went to the fountain gate, and I wanted to get to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through. It was so much rubble that I couldn't even get through. So though it was still dark, he writes, I went up the Kidron Valley instead. And by the way, you can see all this still today. Much of this geography is exactly the same. If you were to go to Jerusalem, you see it. The Kidron, Hinnon, they're all there. It's all there. The gates themselves are still, you can see it. So he goes, at least it, it, a remnants of what are gates, not necessarily from this particular temple, but you can see the city itself then and sort of what, what it was like in Nehemiah's time. He says, I went up to the Kidron instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. Now, that's the picture. He says, the city officials, look at this, verse 16. They did not know I had been out there or what I was doing. So Because I, I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. In fact, I had not even spoken, he says, to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But... Finally, I broke my silence, and I said to them these words. You know very well what, what trouble we are in, and Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire, and it's gone on way too long. I need to say this to you. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. And, and then I told them, about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about the conversations that I had with the king and how he had been favorable and how he had basically been extremely gracious towards us and supplied all that we needed, the resources that we needed to get this done. He says, and when I told him that, they replied back to me at once, yes, let us rebuild this wall, the wall. We're gonna do it, we're with you. And so Nehemiah says, we began the good work of building the wall. That's the account. Now, one of the things that's going to come up so clearly and consistently, and it is going to be true across the board, 
is that, and here's, it just, we'll just lay it out as a, as a governing principle, a singular principle. Whenever we are attempting to make progress, particularly spiritual progress, at a character level, there is going to be a high degree of resistance. This is a reality. In fact, I'm going to ask you to do something I don't normally ask you guys all to do. I want you to turn to somebody and say, when trying to make progress, you're going to experience resistance. Go ahead. Say that to one or two people next to you. Give it a shot. Go for it. All right? (laughs) All right. Good for you. You know, it is a, it is a, it is a law of life. It's not, it's not paranoia. Whenever we're attempting to make progress in an area, it's not always going to be smooth sailing. There are going to be times when we're going to experience headwinds. And and I think I'm saying what we know, many of us know experientially, but it's important to recognize it. When we are trying to respond to God, when we're trying to bless someone a lot, it may have to do with, like, with Nehemiah. He was trying to serve the welfare of, of people that he hadn't even ever met or seen before. That wasn't his city. It wasn't his home. He felt a connection to it. He wanted to bless them. He had a burden for it. And yet he was going to experience resistance. There are times when we, we are wanting to do something responsibly for God, and we're going we're to feel like, well, why, isn't, why is this so hard? Or maybe we have something that we're trying to deal with inside of our own heart. Uh, it might have to do with issues of our past. It might have to do with the character thing that God's trying to get at and trying to get us. Listen, listen, you know, I'm use this analogy. The walls of a city are like the walls around our personality. And many people, at least a few teachers and theologians have said, in some ways, Nehemiah is like a type of the Holy Spirit. In the sense that he comes into places where there, are, there is brokenness and vulnerability. And God is seeking to establish health. So that where there has been almost... Uh, a pe- almost a peaceableness with dysfunction, if you will. That there has been an, a level of oppression that has been with us so long in a particular area that we have grown like the citizens of Jerusalem, sort of at peace with that less than favorable place. And that part of what God wants to do at times is come into that situation in our lives and build something of health and life where there can be compounding blessing where areas in which we've lived with a degree perhaps of duality, uh, we feel ashamed. Think about it. What was the phrase he uses? This, let us end this disgrace. This is not God's plan. This is not God's way. And there are times where the Lord would say to us, I want to build something of health in an area that there has been only a vulnerability. You see what I'm saying? And there are, there, and when we seek to do that, if we believe that it's just going to be easy, there, when we're trying to make progress and address things and get better and grow stronger and cultivate that growing edge that we talk about, to live well in a very challenging and at times toxic culture that is set up not to enhance a life lived well for God, but in indirectly or directly it is designed to undermine it at some level. And I'm not, I don't want to sound bitter or paranoid. I'm just being honest. When it comes to wanting to live a life of blessing and health and growth, there are going to be obstacles in the way. Nehemiah is going to be an example of someone who has to face things. And look, it, things get tough. Even the point, there are going to be things that buckle our knees. That it's like, it sh- they shake us. And there are going to be times where we're going to need to regroup. And we're going to remind ourselves why we're doing what we're doing. One of the great lessons of this book is to watch them seek to build this wall. 
and to watch what happens as there is effort being made to stop it and to, and to watch how the interaction takes place. One of the things we see already, and I'll just kind of put this under the category of, of that there is a time when we're facing challenging things, there's a time to do certain things. Using Nehemiah as a template in the, what we just read, think about what happened here. And think about how it might apply to our situations that we're seeking to get breakthrough into. When we face challenging situations, let's remember, there is a time to exercise a degree of discretion, right? And a time to exercise assessment. He does both. Think about what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah walks into this situation, and he doesn't like start saying, hey, guess what? I'm here. Right? He doesn't say, you know, I've come from Persia. I'm your guy. I'm going to help you all. It's not, in fact, he didn't even, they don't even know why he's there. His enemies don't know, but neither do the citizens of Jerusalem. Nobody really knows. Hey, why is this guy from, you know, did you know that guy from Persia showed up? Yeah, I know, but what's he here for? I don't know. Did you ask him? Yeah, but he's not saying it. What's he doing? I don't know. He's very quiet, very careful. He doesn't walk in there and just start telling people what's going on. He, he doesn't say, hey, guess what? God put a burden in my heart for you. He doesn't say that. He walks in, and you know what he does? He not only exercises a degree of discernment, you know, sort of this idea of discretion, but he also um, is very careful to assess exactly what is happening. He wants to get a, a, a sense of the landscape. He wants to, to look at the walls themselves, and he needs to inspect them. He needs to get an idea of what this challenge is going to be and make sure that I'm focusing on the right thing. There's this real humility about the man seeking first to understand. There is a wisdom in not just flailing out in passion, um, you know, God's with me, I'm the guy. No, there's a degree of caution and humility and wisdom in the way in which he sort of assesses the nature of the problem. You see it? And he's watching what's happening. He's looking at the condition of the wall. He's looking at what's happening at a social-political standpoint with the, the Sambalat and Tobiah. He's aware of, okay, I see how it's working here. I get it. He waits. But he also models for us not only the idea that there's a time for discretion and assessment, but secondly, what does he do? It, he, he reminds us that there's a time to finally speak out, number two, speak out, and to share, share the story of God's involvement. And you guys can put, go ahead and put that up and share the story of God's involvement in our situation. And that's just a very important thing. Why? Why is that? Because what does he do? He says, listen, let me, let me uh, tell you about, and he doesn't say, this is what you, look at that uh, 17th verse. He doesn't say, you, you know very well the trouble that you are in. He says, you guys are aware of the trouble that we are in. He includes himself. What else does he do? He says, he says, let, he says, he doesn't say, now what you guys need to do is rebuild that wall. He says, let us rebuild the wall. There's a, there's, there's a sense of fully identifying. He, when he speaks, he speaks to them together. And he asks them to join together. There is a power, listen, when facing challenging situations in asking people to join with us. You see that wisdom. And then sharing. And what does he do? He then says, but it's not just us. We're not alone. God is with us. Let me tell you why I know and believe he is with us. You know, I didn't have the ability just to do this on my own. I needed the king's permission. But the king, God softened his heart. Not only did he let me go to respond to this. He, God put this in my heart, I believe. He says, but God gave me favor with the king. He let me go, and he gave us all the supplies we need to do this. All I need to hear from you is, do you want to join me in this quest? 
And there's a sense of, it's a great reminder for us that when we're really working through certain areas of our lives, there is a power and a value in engaging in real community. It's one of the reasons we talk about the power of small group, the power of being able to, to be known, the power of serving together, the power of having others who are sharpening us, that two is better than one, a threefold cord not easily broken, as the scripture says, that there is um, a strength in being able to pray for one another, to confess our faults safely with one another, and to pray that we may be healed, that we all at times are going to need the wisdom of others, that God uses that as a tremendous tool for our safety and well-being, and that most breakthrough occurs in connection with others. Lastly, notice what else happens. He says that there is a time, basically he says, will you, will you help me now? I need you to respond. I need you to, are you willing to do this? And that reminds us that there is a time to work. There's a time to get to work. There's a time for getting to work, and there's a time for patiently enduring. And those two principles are critical. That, that simply just saying, well, you know, um, that's a nice thing. We'd like to do it. No, there, there's going to have to be a time where we put our shoulder to the load and just say, I'm, I'm willing to go for this. And I love that. I love that the idea that he basically, in other words, it's got to go beyond just a good intention. There's going to have to, we're going to we're gonna have to decide. We want to address the situation with some degree of action. Notice they began, it says, the good work. You know, dreams without doing are destined to disappoint. Dreams without doing are destined to disappoint. There's a time in which we've got to basically do things. There's a time to pray, there's a time to prepare, and then there's a time to pay a price. There's a time to pray, there's a time to prepare, and there's a time to pay a price. And when, if, if we pray when God's saying it's time to pay the price, we're not going to be able to get the benefit. Now, here's the thing. This brings us full circle. The, the fact is that when we start out doing something well and responding and addressing a situation, and some of us might be here right now, we find there are going to be times where we're going to get that resistance. I want to remind us, and we come full circle here, it's important not to quit when it gets hard. And it's important not to get mad at God when, when we feel frustrated that he's not cooperating. Remember how we talked about this, that sometimes we're saying, God, I need you to open this door. God, I need you to open this door. God, I need you to open this door. And God, instead of opening the door that we've been basically saying, I need you to open, God decides to open up, as we saw in, in the video piece we shared, God opened up a different door. But on that door, it said, good. And it was a good thing. And sometimes we just need to be willing to endure and not quit and remind ourselves that we don't let our heart get corrupted, listen, and don't, don't get sloppy and, and give up. And instead say, Lord, I know you're with me. I know you love me. I know you care for me. I, I, I see it. Even when, and sometimes, Lord, and I know you are faithful even when I don't feel it because I live by faith, not by sight. I, I trust you even when my emotions betray me. I will trust you. I plant myself in your goodness, the goodness that gave everything for me, the goodness that said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even into the ends of the age. Do not forget this, he said. That God waits for us to surrender to him our lives. That is his, he has, okay, he has blessing for us to be a part of. You know what? There was going to be generational blessing that was going to occur. For 140 years, no breakthrough. All of a sudden, there was going to come a breakthrough. And it was going to start with this life because God put it in the heart of someone to respond. Let's pray. Lord, you know, as we, as we ponder these things, as we sit with these principles, you know, even as we close the service out, even the psalm that we're going to close with reminds us 
that, that we have to choose to open ourselves up to you, that you who are the creator of the, the amazing things, the sun, the moon, the stars, that you want to create new things in us as well. And oftentimes, Lord, it's just being willing to join with you and to share a burden. But sometimes, Lord, it's something that's inside of us too. And we know we need to address it. And yet, Lord, it might be easier just to sort of live with that unhealthy thing. And yet, you love us enough to confront us to get better. And so, and, and you don't condemn us, you call us up. And I, I, I pray that you would just give us wisdom to, to join with you in the things that you want to do, both in and around and through us. And so as we close the service out with the closing song, just ask that you be with us. Bless our time of giving. May we honor you to the best of our abilities in this way as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>